Last week we talked about the miracle that Jesus did in a deaf man and a, a mute man. He was able to speak and hear plainly. And that was basically the end of chapter 7. Now we come to chapter 8, which almost sounds like a repeat of chapter 6, where Jesus fed the 5,000. So we're going to read the account, and then we'll go back to look at it verse by verse. Mark 8, starting in verse 1, says, About this time another great crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. And if I send them home without feeding them, they will faint along the road. Some of them are coming a long distance. How are we supposed to find enough food for them here in the wilderness, his disciples asked. How many loaves of bread do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, broke them into pieces, and gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too, so Jesus also blessed those and told the disciples to pass them out. They ate until they were full, and when the scraps were picked up, there were seven large baskets of food left over. There were about 4,000 people in the crowd that day, and he sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region of Dalmanthia. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and I pray that you would help me to rightly divide your word of truth. Help us to apply the principles of your scripture into our lives and let it change and affect how we live according to what your word says. Help us to trust you and believe in what your word tells us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So, now there's a lot of scholars who think that this is just a repeat of the previous story, like a, just a retelling. And they point, out to the fact, they point out to the fact that the disciples forgot about the other one. How could they forget something that just happened? The same kind of situation. Well, how many of us have forgotten what God has done for us sometimes? We look at an answered prayer maybe from a year ago, and we kind of forget that, and we don't believe God can do it again. But we're going to look at these two accounts and find out they are, in fact, two different accounts, and we're going to find out why. A couple of real briefly. The language is different in both of these accounts. The first time it happened in Galilee with the Jewish audience, and this time it was near the Decapolis, we talked about last week, the Ten Towns, with a Gentile audience. The first time it was five loaves and two fishes. This was seven loaves and a few fish. The first group was with Jesus for one day. This group was with him for three days. The first account had 12 baskets of leftovers, and this one had seven. And lastly, and most importantly, Jesus actually recognized them as two separate accounts. Jump ahead to verse 17. Jesus says, Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he said, why are you so worried about having food? Won't you ever learn or understand? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? What about the 5,000 men I fed with five loaves of bread? How many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterward? 12, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven. So Jesus notices and recognizes that these are two separate, distinct accounts. So we're going to approach it as such, distinct even though they are similar. So verse 1 says, About this time another great crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Now, this verse indicates that these events took place close to, if not instantly following, the healing of the deaf man. 
It also tells us the location. They were in the same location, the 10 towns of the Decapolis, which tells us why they were preaching the Gentiles here. And it seems that people were so enthralled with Jesus that they didn't even think about eating or not even about bringing food with them. They weren't worried about being hungry. That kind of ties into what Anna said about the three hours of preaching and three hours of worshiping. I'm thinking at 12 o'clock, I'm going to start hearing some tummies, tummies grumbling and people looking at their watch to see exactly what time it is. But these folks weren't even worried about being hungry. And they weren't even crying out for food. They weren't complaining. They were just there with Jesus. Jesus was the one that recognized that they might be hungry. They weren't even wanting to leave early. Hey, can I make it home in time to eat? They weren't asking themselves, maybe the restaurants will be full. If I don't leave here on time, man, I'm not going to get anything to eat. There's a whole sermon right there. And we won't go there today. Who was concerned about the people? Now, it wasn't the disciples. It was Jesus. In verse 2, I feel sorry for these people. They've been with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. So it appears that his time of ministry and preaching lasted three days. Now, they probably had time to rest, but it was probably pretty continuous for three solid days. And this kind of goes back to what Anna said. And kind of, we didn't share notes. This is kind of a, you know, God kind of doing this together. How many would, we, would be willing to stay in church for three days if Jesus were preaching and Jesus were moving? Every hand should go up, right? Would you be willing to stay for three days solid if Jesus were really moving? Now, this is another time where a translation difference or differing translations help. The New Living Translation, which I read, and it's a good translation, but the New Living Translation says, nothing left to eat, implying that they had food, but now it's all gone. But no other version actually has that said that way. Most of them say, nothing to eat. Not nothing left to eat, nothing to eat. Implying that they never brought food with them. They were in it for the long haul. I didn't bring any food, but I'm staying anyways. And again, it appears the crowd was more interested in Jesus than even getting food to eat. Now this way, this time, that Jesus didn't wait for the guys to complain about it, the disciples. He just anticipated that they were going to say this based on what they said last time. Verse 3 says, you know, if I send them home without feeding them, they'll faint along the road, for some of them have come a long distance crowd never seemed to ask for it. They weren't hungry for food. They weren't complaining about it. They weren't saying, Jesus, where's our food? But Jesus knew what they needed before they asked for it. Does that sound familiar? Matthew 6, 8. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Skipping ahead to verse 31 in Matthew. So don't worry about saying, what, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We could just stop right there. Is that verse true? How many have experienced that provision in your life? You search God, seek God, and 
Doesn't mean you don't think about it, but you don't let that consume you. You don't, God, I'm worried. What am I going to? God says, You just search me, search me, and I'll supply it for you. With those of you with little kids, do they come every, every meal going, Dad, I'm worried. Mom, I'm worried. Do we have enough food? Do we have enough food? No. They know you're going to have enough food. They may not like your food, but they know what kind of food you're going to have. They know they're going to have food. And if it were up to the disciples, they wouldn't have gotten any food. You know what that tells us? Don't put your trust in, pe- in what people may or may not do. Because people will always fail you. You put a trust in God and what God says he'll do, he'll do. The Bible says God will never fail you. Our pastor used to say, if you have a need, if you have a real legitimate need, don't go telling everybody about it. Ask God for it. Because when you tell a lot of people, they, people are good-hearted, they'll, they'll minister to you, they may give you something. But if you tell God only, and then God provides it, you know it came from God. That God was the one that provided it for you. And the question is, do you believe what God's word says? Do you believe that God knows what you're going to need before you need it? Do you believe that God will give you what you need before you need it if you simply seek him first? This crowd seemed to be seeking Jesus. That's all they wanted. No one's grumbling and complaining about food, according to this text. And Jesus applied it for them before they even asked. And if Jesus doesn't change, and he did that for them, do you think he's going to do it for you? What do you need? Not what do you want. I mean, that, that could come into play, but what do you need right now? You think God will provide it for you. If you seek him and only him, God will provide it for you. So the disciples jump in, you know, clueless, and they say, verse 4, how are we supposed to find that food to feed them here in the wilderness? Once again, the disciples were looking at what's right in front of them. They weren't trusting God. They weren't, there's no McDonald's anywhere nearby. There's no farmer's markets anywhere they can go. They're looking at what's in front of them. So the disciples were correct in their assessment in the natural. That's if you don't trust Jesus to handle things that you can't. So, we're looking at the township acquiring our property, possibly by eminent domain, and giving us not nearly enough money to move ahead and do whatever we got to do. We will, in fact, have seven loaves and a few fish to buy land and rebuild. If God wasn't involved and we didn't trust God to protect his church, I'd be kind of worried. They're the government. Are they gonna? But what we say, nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is impossible for God. Most of our married life, we rented. And every place we were, at some point in that rental process, the landlord decided, I'm going to sell my property. You got 30 days. And that, that, like five or six times that happened. And every time, every time, God provided a place to live within that time frame. Now, I know there's a lot of folks here struggling with situations that are out of your control. Us having to move was out of our control. The township, 
out of our control. The verses we read before, that's for you. Matthew 6, 8, don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's your dad. What's the Bible say? If you ask, ask your father for a loaf of bread, he's going to give you a snake. God knows what you need. If you seek him first, back in Matthew, seek first his kingdom and righteousness, all these things will be given to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I heard the analogy once of, of worry. Worry is like signing for a loan, never taking the money, but paying the interest on the loan. You're paying interest on something that you don't even have. You're worrying about something that hasn't even happened yet. And I think statistics show us that about 75% of things we worry about never actually happen. But we spend time worrying about them. God says, don't. What's the difference between concern and worry? Concern is things that you can handle. Going to work, getting up late for your job, arriving late, doing things that you have control over. If you're constantly late for your job, you might lose your job. However, if you do everything right and everything's out of, you're doing everything right, things that you can handle, the rest is what you can't handle. Worry is things that are out of your control. My company's having layoffs, what am I gonna do? It's out of your control. I'm, I'm feeling sick today, what should I do? Out of your control. The Bible says, don't worry about that. God has it under control. In fact, how often, I don't know the stats, but how often does worry affect the healing process? I'm not a nurse or a doctor. If anybody is, you can chime in. Worry and concern. What does worry produce? Ulcers, right? Stress, ulcers, heart trouble. All these things that worry can overwhelm you with. But just like usual, the disciples forgot about the very last thing that Jesus just did. I mean, it wasn't long ago that Jesus just did the same miracle. And a few days or maybe weeks later, memories wiped clean. Now, it's easy for us to blame those guys, but how often do we forget when God's answered prayer for us? Ask yourself, when was the last time God met a need or answered my prayer? Do you remember every time God answered? We've used the analogy here. When we first got here, our church van literally caught on fire. Burn up. If you were here, you knew. So guess what? We had to trust God to provide another van for us. And we took out a four-year loan, and it paid it off in less than a year. Then our furnace gave out. I'm thinking to myself, maybe we shouldn't be here. We come and all this bad stuff happens. Furnace gives out. Had to pay a gazillion dollars for a new furnace. A 10-year note, we paid off in about three. So I'm not worried about the property. Why? Because you look back and see where God, every time God met that need. Now, how many of you journal? Anybody journal? Like keep a diary, I guess is another term. I used to do that when I first got saved. I would write down stuff and... I probably should get back to that, but it helps you remember the things that God has answered. 
You may forget things that God did five, ten years ago. But it's good to remember all those things because if God did it then, you know, God's outside of time, so that time doesn't matter to God. If he did it 20 years ago, it doesn't mean, oh, it's been 20 years, I don't work that way anymore. God works the same way. God didn't rely on Israel's memory. He told them to construct memorials to remind them and the next generation. And even then, they still blew it. But our job is to remind us what God's did, what God has done. Now, here's, a, here's an assignment for you. For you senior saints who have been around this church or around the Lord, I want you to start remembering and writing down all that God has done for you and for this church over the years. Long before I got here, if you've been here that long, start writing that stuff down. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to call you up. I'm going to have you share what God did for you 25 years ago or whatever. Because we need to hear that kind of stuff to trust him for today, right? It's easy to think, well, we have, we, you know, we have money in the bank and our van's running good and the furnace is new. It's easy to think, well, you know, who needs the Lord right now? We're good. We need to remember that stuff then because we're not going to have to remember it instantly when something comes up right away. If the township starts digging tomorrow, we don't want to go scrounging around thinking, where did God, where did God do this? We know where God did it. We don't have to worry about it. I kind of equate that to studying for a test. Study for a test, you're not worried about what's on the test. If you don't study for the test and the test comes up, now you're scrambling, you're, you're cramming the night before, it doesn't go so well. So we want to be prepared and we want to be, our faith built up to the point where whatever happens, God's got it. And we want to be sure that we're doing what we need to do on our end. And there are some things that we need to do, but we don't want to overstep what God's doing. I'll, I'll give you an example of that. We saw the movie Sign of Freedom yesterday. How many have seen that movie? I'll tell you to go see it. You'll be really discouraged when you leave, but it's a good movie. And it's about child trafficking. And I said to Anna when we left, I said, you know, if you ever wonder why God says to Israelites, go wipe everybody out. I know why God said that. You watch this movie and you get that feeling. Now, the guy who it's about the real story, he could have said, you know what, I'm just going to pray about it. Nothing would have happened. We don't think. He had actually go in and do something about it. And he had to go in and risk his life to do stuff. And there's times when God's going to call us to step out in faith and maybe risk something that only prayer isn't going to do it. What's the Bible say in James? Faith without works, dead. There will be times when God calls us to step out and do something that we may not feel comfortable doing. And we want to be sure that we're prayed up and ready to do that when that call comes. And it may be this, it may be something else. It may be just taking a stand in society for what Christians believe. We were talking about this in, in our class this morning. It's pretty easy, even with what's going on in this world, it's still pretty easy to be a Christian in this country. But how many know that it's not so easy being a Christian in other countries? You know, they suffer to the point of death. And we were, we were talking in class, you know, 
if my life were on the line, I think, you know, I would be able to handle it. But if they threaten my kids, you know, I'm like, oh, I hope I'd be strong enough. Well, that's what's happening right now in other parts of the world. They're getting killed for their faith. Are we going to stand up for that? And what happens is if we don't stand up for the little things now, it's going to eventually get to that point later. So the things we think, well, that's, you know, it's not, not so bad. We'll just let them, let bygones be bygones. We'll just preach the gospel and that's all. If we only do that and we don't try to affect change, we're eventually going to get that way. Every country has gone, look at England. They were the birthplace of Christianity before it came here. And they're all but apostate now. Canada, they're all but apostate now. It's coming our way. We just have to be ready and standing firm when it comes. Now, the Bible says we ultimately lose in the end, that part, because the Bible says it's going to get worse and worse before Christ returns. And after watching that movie, I'm thinking to myself, how can it get any worse? How can it get any worse than what's happening here? But it will. It's going to come here. And we just need to be able to stand as long as God allows us to stand before that actually happens. That wasn't even in my notes. That's free. The te- these testimonies that I'm asking you to do and recollections of God answered prayer is going to help everyone here build their faith. I want to hear what God's done for you in the past, maybe yesterday, maybe 10 years ago. I want to hear it to build up my faith. And other people need to hear it as well to build up their faith. If God's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we're not seeing things like that happen now that happened before, why? Could it be we forgot God's promises and we haven't been seeking him like we used to? And I think the guys here were learning a little bit what's happening, the disciples. They were getting a little bit better, not quite there yet. Last time they sent the, they sent the people away, wanted to send them away. Lord, send them away. This time, they didn't want them to leave. They were just worried about getting them food. So they were, they were progressing, but they weren't really where God wanted them to be yet. Their trust in God's word was growing, but they still lacked faith. God wants us to keep growing in the knowledge of his word. That only happens when we step out in faith and trust God for something that we can't ever see happening in our own power, which goes to the verse that Anna read this morning. God is the God of the impossible. Warren Wiersbe says, a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. It's easy to have faith when everything's going your way. But when push comes to shove and there's something that's right in front of you that now is going to test your faith, it proves how much your faith is strong. Do you cave at the first thing or do you press on through with your faith? And faith only works when it's put to the test. You don't have to have faith to walk in and turn the lights on because you know they're going to turn on unless something weird happens. You don't have faith that your car is going to start because it happens, it starts every time. You don't have to have faith that you're going to wake up the next morning. But what happens when things aren't always guaranteed like that? Are you still going to have the faith, the trust that God's going to work? And how can we ever learn to trust God if we're never put in a position to have to trust him? We used to do it with our kids. 
they would like to stand on the stair and jump into our arms, you know. They would do it in the first stair, no problem. Then you have them jump, you know, move up two or three stairs, and you put your arms out, and then it's kind of a, ooh, I don't know if I'm going to trust you, Dad, to catch me. But you did that in order for them to build trust in that what you were going to do was going to be okay. Trust me, I'm going to catch you when you jump. And what happens is they, once they step out and they, just, they trust you and they jump and you catch them, build their faith. And they're able to do it better the next, second time and the third time. And that's what God does for us. He puts his arms out, okay, you need to jump. Are you going to trust me? And it's easy for us to say, you know, uh, no, I'm good right where I'm at. God says, no, I need you to jump and trust me. And once you do it, and once you step out and you see God catch you, then it's easier to do the second time. So the disciples are worried about the food. They say, how many loaves of bread do you have, Jesus said. Seven, they replied. So Jesus told them all the, all the people to sit down on the ground. Again, different from the last time because he had them break up in groups of 50 and 100. He didn't do that this time. Then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, broke them into pieces, and gave them to his disciples, who distributed bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too, so Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to pass them out. Now, Jesus could have made something from nothing, right? He could have just went poof and created the fish, but he didn't. Now, he obviously created more, but he wanted to use the little bit that was provided. In other words, the people had to give up their bread. If, I have, if I've got seven loaves or my family has seven loaves, I've got to give them up so that everybody's fed. And I think the analogy applies to us and our talents and abilities. You don't have to be a scholar or theologian or gifted in any area to be used by God. God will take your limited giftings, your seven loaves or a couple of fish, and he will use them to possibly bless multitudes of people. As the saying goes, God is more concerned with your availability than your ability. Another one is God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. Every guy that God called in the Bible, pretty much everybody said, I can't do it. I, I can't talk, I can't speak, I'm whatever. And God said, it doesn't matter. I'll give you what you need when you need it. God will equip you after he calls you. And trust me, it's going to be, a, it, whenever God calls you, it's a scary thing. It could be a little thing, it could be a big thing, but it's, you know, it's scary because you've never done it before. And God says, that's okay. I'll help you. I'll give you what you need. The disciples had to give, maybe it was the disciples' food, we don't know. They had to give up their own food. Maybe it was their food. Are you willing to give up what you have in order for Jesus to bless others? And that could be your time, that could be your resources, that could be your talents, your giftings, abilities. Jesus takes the limited food, blessed it, and fed 4,000. That was just guys. So it's probably eight to 10,000 people. You never know who God can bless or what God can do with what you think might be nothing. Well, my testimony is not, not that amazing. It's just, it's boring. Nothing in my life can really help anybody else. It's, my life is really plain. It doesn't matter. 
you have a testimony that someone might need to hear. And whether it's just, you know, I've been a Christian since I was eight years old and I've lived faithfully for Christ for 60 years. Maybe someone needs to hear that. Maybe someone who's struggling, who got saved at eight years old, thinks they're never going to make it to 60. They see it's possible. I wasn't, I wasn't a drug addict, saved out of all kinds of bad things and miraculously healed. Doesn't matter. God can use your story to bless somebody. Verse 8 says, They ate until they were full, and when the scraps were picked up, there were seven large baskets of food left over. It doesn't say that Jesus left them hungry. His provision was sufficient. Now, he could have given them enough to say, okay, yeah, that was a good appetizer, but I want more food. The Bible says he gave them enough that they were full. God always provides enough, even to the point of excess. The term for basket here is literally a basket large enough for a person to be sitting in. The same word is used when Paul was lowered down out of the building, out of the wall. They lowered him in a basket. That's the same term it was used. So it's a huge basket, not a little dinky basket. And so that's how much food they had left over. The account in chapter 6 uses the term for the small basket that Jews would carry their bread in. This is the huge basket of leftovers. Again, indicating that this is different from the other account. So verse 9 says, there were about 4,000 people in the crowd that day, and he sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat, and his disciples crossed over to the region of Delmanthua, Delmanutha. The crowd didn't leave because they were fed. They left because Jesus sent them home. The food wasn't the reason they stayed with Jesus. And then we'll circle back to a point we made earlier. The crowd was more interested in Jesus than getting food. When they started following Jesus, there was no promise of food. He didn't say, if if you hang, hang with me, you follow me, I'll feed you in a couple of days. No promise. They followed him regardless of if he provided food or not. He didn't want, they didn't, were interested in food. They weren't interested in what he did or didn't provide. They wanted Jesus. And they probably would have stayed even if Jesus never fed them. They even wanted to stay after they were fed. But that wasn't their reason for staying or even following in the first place. They wanted Jesus, and everything after that was a bonus. Which brings us back to another section we talked about earlier. And we'll close with this one. Oh, man, is it that early? I might have to make stuff up as we go. Matthew 6, 31. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. If you love God and serve the Lord simply because of who he is, God takes care of the rest. Now I know most of us here love God and serve the Lord for no other reason than that he saved me. If he doesn't give me anything else, I'm still going to love God. But how often do we trust God's promise of providing what we need? We serve God and we don't expect anything from God and 
you know, it's just enough that we're saved. But the Bible gives us promises that we're to cling on to, that we're to trust him for, which proves him to be true and proves him to be faithful. And if you never expect God to do anything, God's never going to do anything. It's when you come to expect God to do something. And we, that's our phrase. We, we come expecting God to show up in the church. We expect God to, to move. We expect the Holy Spirit to minister. We expect something to happen. Not because we deserve it, but we know a God who intervenes with us. We want God to show up. And we want God to meet the needs that we have present. And if we never trust him for anything, he's not going to provide it. Lord, I'm really not worried about my job. I don't care. God says, okay. Do you trust me? Well, I, you know, I, don't, I don't really trust you that much. I, I just, it's gonna, whatever it is, it's going to happen. Well, God says, you need to trust me in spite of what you see. My promise is I will provide for you. Now, your job isn't the provision. That God gives you the job, that's the provision. The job. That's God's provision. God gives you the ability to go out and buy food through the job that you have. God promises to touch and heal your bodies. Does he do it every time? No. Does that make the promise not true? No, the promise is still true. And you still pray for it, and you pray until, I forget when I heard someone say, oh, Mark Lowry said this, Either God heals me or takes me home. One way or the other. Either way. How many of you think that God provides for other people but not for you? God's really good to that person, but you know, I don't know if he'll provide for me. My life isn't perfect and I you know, haven't really done everything I needed to do. I love God. I, I want to serve him to the best of my ability, but I don't know if I deserve to get anything from God. Now, how many of you parents who have more than one child provide for one child and not the other ones? Well, Mandy, you can have everything. Lauren, sorry, not, nothing for you today. And it's not based on how they react to me. Right? I, don't, I don't not feed them because they had a bad attitude. They have food, and there's obviously discipline, but you don't not do something for one of your kids when you do it for the other. At least you shouldn't. You know, Joseph had that problem in his family. <laughs> Jacob was kind of a, had a favorite kid. He gave him the robe, and he didn't give his other sons anything. That's a problem. But when you have more than one kid and you only give to one and not the other, doesn't make you a good parent. Do you think that God does the same thing? God provides for that person because they're really very spiritual, but God's not going to provide for you because you're not quite as spiritual as they are. And how do you judge spirituality? Only God can really judge that. You know, a lot of people say, well, God knows my heart. Well, the problem is, that's, that's the problem. <laughs> God knows your heart. The Bible says it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? But it's also good because it doesn't matter what other people think of you. 
God knows your heart. God knows your desire. God knows you're wanting to serve him. I used this example before. Your kids, they want to do something for you. They really have put their heart and effort into it. And in the process of making you a craft or whatever it is, they really, they love you and they want to make this craft for you. In the process of making that craft, they spill paint or they break something. Do you yell at them for breaking something and forget about the craft or do you look at the heart of the kid who's making the craft? Man, I know your desire wasn't to break that thing. I know you, you were really wanting to please me in the craft that you're making, so let's go clean that up. You know your kid's heart. Their heart was that they wanted to please you. And in the process, they messed up. If your heart is to really please God in the process, you kind of mess up in your desire to please God. Guess what God looks at? God looks at your heart. Now, if there's sin, God judges that and God tells you to fix it. But if it's a mistake, how many know there's a difference between a mistake and sin? If I spill paint, it's a mistake, not a sin. If I do something that's wrong, because I know it's wrong, sin. If I do something wrong and I forget that it's wrong, mistake. Both you've got to confess, but they're different, different attitudes. And God responds differently. I mean, there's no coincidence that the Bible says that God calls himself our father. And we have an idea of what a good father would be. Whether or not you had one, you know what a good father is. And that's the kind of God God wants us to understand him as, as our father. Not as someone out there waiting with a, a mallet to smack you every time you do something wrong. But he wants to bring you in and he wants to provide for you as your dad. And what he gets out of that is your faith grows and your love for him grows. The Bible says the goodness of God leads people to repentance. When you look at how good your life is and how good God has blessed you, don't you just want to say, Lord, forgive me if I've done anything to hurt you because of you've been so good to me. I don't want to ever do that because you've been that good to me. That's what God's looking for. God wants you to trust him. Lord, I don't see how that's going to ever resolve itself. I'm not sure how it's going to resolve itself, but you know what? I'm not worried about it. That's beyond my control. God, you're going to fix that. My family, if my family's dysfunctional, Lord, I can't control that. You can do that. Lord, my job is on the line. I don't know what's going to happen. I've done all I can do. I'm a good, good employee. So God, you're going to have to Handle that for me. And the Bible says that God gives his children good gifts. So do you trust God to meet your need? Whether you see it coming or not. And that's what faith comes in, right? Faith is believing the impossible, seeing things that aren't there. The evidence of things un, yet unseen. You don't see it happening. You don't see how God can do it and you try to figure out how God's going to do it. And the minute you try to figure out how God's going to do it is the minute you become frustrated because it's not happening that particular way. And that's where it's, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. I have no clue of how you're going to fix this thing. But I trust that you're going to fix it. Would you stand as we close? Would you bow your heads for a moment? Close your eyes.
even in a, in a congregation this size, we know there's a lot of people that walk in who may have doubts about God being their father, who may have doubts about God meeting this particular need, that God blesses somebody else, but he doesn't bless me. And sometimes it appears that way. And some people seem to skate through life problem-free, and others just seem to have one thing after another happen to them. And that's one of those questions we can't answer. And that's where faith comes in. God, you're my father. I don't quite understand what's happening to me, but I trust you that you will get me through it. Your word says when you walk through the fire, when I walk through the fire, I won't be burned. When I pass through the waters, I won't drown. It doesn't say I go around them. It says I go through them. But it also says that when I go through them, you're there with me to guide me through them. So if you're here this morning and you just, you're running out of faith, I guess would be a, an expression. That you've trusted God for so long and it just hasn't, hasn't happened yet. The Bible says, just simply trust Jesus. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Lord, help me just to live my life the way you want me to. And I'm going to trust you to take care of the rest. Because I can't take care of it anyways. The Bible says to think on the things that are lovely of good report, things in your life that God has done, and things in your life that other people have, have experienced from God. And if God did it for them, <clears throat> God can do it for you. So we live in faith, not by sight, not by what we think or how we think God can handle it. We just know that God can handle it. And whether or not, whether or not I understand how God's going to do it is irrelevant. Because the Bible says that nothing is too hard for God. So if you're here and you're really doubting God, I want you to really feel that this is for you. God knows what you need. God knows what you need. The people weren't even crying for food and Jesus knew what they needed. God knows what you need. And God knows what you're going to need in the future, even before you do. And God's already prepared a response for that. Our job is to simply do our best loving and serving him, reading, taking time to pray, and God will handle that stuff. If you're here this morning, you've never really given your life to Christ. You don't know what that means. Lord, I, I've, hear, I've heard all this stuff before. I know this stuff about church, but I don't know what it means to trust Jesus. And what's simple, the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you'll be saved. For it's through the heart that you believe in your mouth that you confess that challenges people, lets people know, lets God know, Lord, I believe it in my heart. I believe that Jesus took the punishment for me. He took it for me. I'm a sinner. The wages of my sin is death, so Jesus took that death for me. And all I have to do is not just believe it in my head, but believe it in my heart to the point where it changes my lifestyle that I no longer want to do what I've done before, 
that I want to do the right thing, that I want to serve God, I want to love God. When you become a Christian, that becomes your whole attitude. That you don't want to do that stuff anymore. You want to be different. You want to please God. That's what being born again is. And if you've never done that, but you really want to do that today, there's no coincidence, no accident that you're here. God puts everything together, ultimately to bring people closer to himself. So if you're here and that's you and you really want to make it the choice to believe that Jesus died for you, I want you to raise your hand. Father, thank you for allowing everyone here to trust you. And Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit really convinces the folks that are here today that God, you love them, you care for them, and you are the God who provides what we need. Your promises are true. We cling to them, Lord. Without your promises, Lord, we would be in a world of hurt. But we trust your word is true. We trust your promises are true. And we live by those promises every day. And more often than not, we see answers to those in ways that amaze and astound us. And it builds our faith to trust you for the next time around. So Father, as we leave this morning, allow us to leave encouraged, uplifted, that our dad in heaven cares about you, knows where you are, and knows what you need. And if he's a good father, as the word says he is, he will give you, he will provide what you need. Bless us as we leave this morning and allow us to be encouraged, not just this morning, but all week, knowing that my dad in heaven loves me. And it's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Tell me, senior saints, that wasn't just a sermon topic. That was a challenge. And, that, and you don't have to be a senior saint. You've been a Christian a long time to, or a short time. What has God done for you? We need testimonies like that for other people to encourage us. So be, be in prayer about that. I'm going to be coming to you, so be ready.